Welcome to Refuge Radio. In this episode, we head to the West Coast, where in the heart of California's high-tech industry lies a 30,000-acre oasis for millions of migratory birds and endangered species. One of the nation's first urban national wildlife refuges sits uh, on the southern end of San Francisco Bay. The refuge, created in 1972, was largely the result of a grassroots effort by local communities to protect the San Francisco Bay ecosystem. And on the phone with me today is Seal Craig. Seal is the president of the San Francisco Bay Wildlife Society, a not-for-profit organization and refuge friends group, authorized by Congress to support the education, interpretation, and research activities of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The primary mission of the society is to promote public awareness and appreciation of the San Francisco Bay and its natural history, and to conserve and preserve the remaining baylands as essential wildlife habitat. Seal. Welcome to Refuge Radio. Well, hi. Welcome to you, too, to the California Airwaves. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for being on with us today. Um, tell me and our listeners a little bit about Don Edwards San Francisco Bay National Wildlife Refuge. and Tell us where it is and how long it's been around. What does it protect? Why is it there? Well, let me start with the history part. It's been around since 1972 or so, and it was formed, as you mentioned, by a group of concerned citizens, and they reached out to Don Edwards, and ultimately the refuge, I think, was named in the 80s or something for him from the San Francisco Bay part. But I think what it was is we had moved here. My husband and I had moved in this area in 85 We'd already seen at that point, so I could just picture 13 years before that, what it was like to see all of the urban uh, dwellings, uh, land masses encroaching on this big bay that was surrounded apparently a long time ago with marsh and now is with a lot of ponds and things like that. So it was... uh, it was formed to try to save it more than anything else. I mean, that's the number one thing. So what is there to protect? Um, well, there's a couple of endangered species that I, I know two of them. I've seen two of them, snowy plover and the Ridgeway rail, which used to be known as the uh, clapper rail. They're rare. I haven't seen the clapper rail more than a few times up in Fremont. Never with my camera in hand. Yeah. And then there's the salt marsh, salt marsh harvest mouse. Say that multiple times really fast. <laughs> and, and and that depends. And all three of them depend very much on the salt salt marsh habitat that's in the area. Um, we have uh, four types of habitat generally. There's marsh of different kinds, brackish, salt marsh, freshwater marsh. And then there's these ponds, and I'll talk about those. And then mud flats. Um, and then there's a very small area of what are, what are called vernal pools, which I have to admit I have not yet visited. Um, so vernal, vernal pool means it's there sometimes and not in others? Exactly. Um, they're only there during times when we have a bunch of water, uh, typically in the spring, late winter kind of thing, and there are the, the things that are, live there have adapted to this very dry period when the summer and fall and so on and not. So they're little tiny things, and um, I think there's salamanders and fairy shrimp and stuff like that. Um, and then we have uplands, which is the smallest part of the whole whole refuge, et cetera. So it, it sounds huge. I mean, when I when I say thirty thousand acres, that in itself 
doesn't sound that big, but given the diversity of habitats you just listed, I mean, where does it start, where does it end, and how does it encompass so many different types of uh, ecosystems? Well, part of it is the Bay Area itself has so many in some ways. You know, you're, we're surrounded by by ridges of mountains on the east and the west, and then uh, and further down the south. So we're kind of this narrow, long thing, and there's land on either side. And right in the center of it is this long bay coming down from, let's say, the San Francisco, two big bridges coming down south to El Viso uh, or north San Jose. And on the east and west side of each side of the bay are all these mar- ponds, what used to be marshes, and these evaporative, salt-evaporated ponds that were used for salt production were built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, actually. Uh, so there's 15, I don't know how many more, but there's 15,000-plus acres of salt ponds that became part of the salt pond restoration project, which is a whole other thing. So we're in the process of changing these back over time into marsh of various kinds. So when you come here from another part of the country, like I grew up in Minnesota, come here, it is so different. There aren't these huge forests of trees and lakes and things like that. What we have is this big bay in the center of it, and what the refuge is is all of that stuff around the edges of the bay. And from the west, south, east, uh, kind of this big U, shall we say. Um, I don't know if that gives you a good picture yeah, of it or not. No, it paints, paints a perfect picture for me. So given that, you know, that U-shaped uh, aspect of the refuge, you must be touching lots of different communities. Um, who's, who's enjoying the refuge? And maybe most importantly, who do you think is benefiting from the refuge being there? Well, it, it's a, I mean, it's a wide thing. I mean, I, a number of things come to mind when you ask that question. Uh, my first, the first one that comes to my mind is, for example, Facebook. They're on the west side of the refuge where the Dunbarton Bridge goes across over to the peninsula. And they've become a good supporter and working with the refuge on a variety of, I think, capital uh, things as well. They were the, one of the first donors to our, what we call the Blue Goose Transportation Fund that provides funding for, uh, I always get this wrong, I think it's Title I schools, low-income schools, uh, to be able to come to field trips at the refuge. And so they kicked us off with that, and they've been continuing partner with with Fish and Wildlife uh, going forward. They're on the west side of the bay. On the east side of the bay, it's a, and, and I should say all along the west side of the bay is large part of Silicon Valley suburban communities. Names you might think of like Palo Alto, Redwood City, uh, Menlo Park, uh, it's a little further inland, but <clears throat> excuse me, Mountain View, uh, Google's home, home kind of thing. So there's a lot of high-tech sites, shall we say, and all the, the homes and communities that go with it. On the east side, there's a bigger, a little bit more hills there, kind of separating things, like Coyote Hill which is on the north side of the refuge uh, headquarters area. Uh, so we have Fremont and Milpitas and Newark and Union City, and they're much more bedroom communities, not quite as much high-tech infrastructure there per se. However, Tesla has their plant there, and uh, their predecessor, NUMI, which was a collaboration of Toyota and General Motors, they were big parts, uh, big supporters of the refuge, and in particular the Friends Group I'm president of for uh, a number of years as well. Then on the south side of this U 
is, uh, again, high-tech all along this one corridor, what they call the 237 corridor. It runs from aerospace, Lockheed, to uh, small big small to big startups all along there. However, right near it is a, a community now. It used to be a city called El Viso. It was annexed by San Jose, so it's part of San Jose. Anyway, that area there, and it's a much more almost, I, I can't say rural. It's not really rural, but it's a very localized suburb. And I, when I go out to the south side of the refuge, where I spend most of my time at the Environmental Education Center there, so, I see families walking there all the time, uh, up and down with their kids and strollers. And from the little community there, they walk out to the refuge. They, that's their evening walk, their Saturday morning, Sunday morning walk with their family and their kids. And it, it really, I think, brings home the people that are visiting there even more so. Sure. So to me, that's uh, I think that's the one piece that really shows how we're in the middle of this very diverse, not tra- not traditionally urban <laughs> yeah. community. Yeah, it's interesting to me. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Facebook was involved in helping you get some kids out to the refuge. Some of the refuges in, in urban settings that I've visited, uh, when I'm creating videos about the refuge system or doing these podcasts on the ground, I've, I've experienced something really neat where kids who have come to the refuge then go home and sort of beg their parents or their guardian, whoever that may be, some family member, to take them back. And so kids are actually bringing their parents to the refuge, uh, almost maybe maybe in, in bigger numbers than parents bringing their kids. I think that's such a neat thing, kind of reversing what I guess would be the classic way that you would introduce nature to a family from the parent down. It's going the other direction. I would agree with that. We we um, in the in the South End Environmental Education Center, the EEC, we've been we both Fish and Wildlife and the San Francisco Bay Wildlife Society, the French group, we've been working for 20 plus years on providing educational outreach um, and environmental education with a fairly long-term partner that unfortunately ended the partnership with us this year. Um, and we were doing a, a what we called an integrated field trip where we would have either our employee or our associates go out to the school and spend time with the school get prepping them, then then they would come out, the whole class, teacher, everybody, and parents, chaperones, and so on, for a school, for a field trip, and then go back to the classroom. So like a three-part thing to really see what had been learned and so on. And I know that in, we were putting stuff together to try to show the real impact of the program. We found a number of young young adults who had come as children on this program because it had been going on 20-some years. And we had quotations from them and so on. So, yeah, there is this long-term kind of impact where uh, we have – uh, people that have come out as children, done a program, came back with their family. Now they're now their parents bringing their kids, and that's how long it's been here, and that's the kind of impact it's had. With Google, Facebook, the rest of Silicon Valley, Tesla, all those names you mentioned, have you been able to leverage that technology knowledge somehow uh, when you're working with kids or or uh, visitors and users of any kind? Well, the 
not per se from the company's instigation. It's, again, more from a, a, a grassroots implementation. There was, and I wish I could remember his name. I'm not as good with that. But there's a gentleman who started a program called Literati. And he, the story, as I've heard him tell it, was he was out with his daughter walking along some levee or river shed or something. And I want to say it was up in the east, northeast Bay, like under something area. And they saw this uh, pail of kitty litter, you know, empty, but pail of kitty litter kind of thing, plastic pail you'd see. And his daughter asked him something to the effect of, why is that there? And he was like, well, it shouldn't be there. You know? So they picked it up and, and, and appropriately disposed of it. And as a result of it, he formed this thing where you would use a technology thing, Instagram, and where you'd take a photograph on your cell phone, you're out walking around your smartphone, and you'd upload it on Instagram with a geotag, and, and you had to put a description of it, uh, where you found it. I mean, that came from the geotag to some extent. And then um, the, the and then you had to proper, properly dispose of it. So this not-for-profit formed, I think it is, came up from it at Literati, and we learned about it, and we decided to, and we have implemented it in a couple of different places, to tag all the litter we pick up. So we recently had a grant, for example, from the Santa Clara Valley Water District that we finished just a little bit ago, and we had some uh, tablets of some the volunteers who went out and did trash pickup. We took a photograph of every of all these pieces of trash, geotagged it, wrote it up, and then you upload it into this database that's accessible to all public public access. And you can see either on a Google map with all the pins or you can download it into you know Excel or something and analyze it. But you can find what are the sources of the trash. Um, and uh, another, cool. yeah, so we we use that, and we continue to use it. Uh, we, yeah, there's uh, a there's a citizen science component to that. There's yep, kind of game, exactly. game, gamification of it. What a neat idea! That that uh -huh. that person may be on a future podcast. That's really cool. <laughs> well, and, and what it also does is it really connects the volunteers that are doing it because it shows they're doing something. They're getting rid of it, but oh, by the way, that data will have meaning. Yeah. So it isn't like a one-time thing. I, I picked up the data, I picked up the trash, and I got rid of it. It's like, oh, now we could analyze and maybe go to a company and say, do you realize that all of these things are showing up from your whatever? And so this longer-term impact, and I think that's something that really makes a difference with this particular technology input. It reminds me of it, yeah. It reminds me of something. I, I used to run a community sailing center in downtown Baltimore, and we would take kids uh, sailing uh, in Baltimore Harbor, right in the Inner Harbor. And as we were sailing, we would dip net for trash that was in the water. Uh, and yeah. we, when we got back, we'd identify what those trash items were, and a lot of it was stuff that. You know, were, uh, candy wrappers and, and bottles and that sort of stuff. And I had a kid talk to me um, and explain to me that he saw that trash on his street and didn't really know where it went. And now that he had seen that it was ending up in the Inner Harbor, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he had had this completely different perspective on Baltimore from looking looking at it from the water back at the city. He he was going to pick up all the trash on his street. He was motivated by that so that it didn't make it to the harbor, which he had just fallen in love with on that trip. So there's another way to use that Instagram to show how the stuff that we have and maybe don't always need where it ends up in these wild places. Well, in particular, as part of that same grant, we developed a um, a traveling exhibit that can be taken to classrooms. We have it in the EEC, and it's it's a it's not your traditional museum exhibit with a lot of writing and photographs and stuff. It's a it's a, it's like a big box. There's a couple of boxes, tall vertical boxes, and on the top of them is a creation that looks like mud and then marsh and tule and uh, things from it. But on one side, it includes pollution. And on the other side, it's pollution-free. So you can see all the way down through the mud. It's like you're looking at a cut of the mud. Um, and so there's two or three pairs of these things for habitats, different habitats uh, that we have in the area. And so we were able to get a, a partner, Clean Harbors, and then um, they're a hazardous waste company, and then I think Whole Foods was another one. And they funded the, the you know development and creation of these. But, it, again, it brings back this how can we prevent pollution getting to the marsh, getting to the habitats, getting to the upland, getting into the bay. And it really connects for the young people because it's a touch-and-feel-like exhibit. Yeah. Wow, that's really neat. So uh, Don Edwards San Francisco Bay National Wildlife Refuge was a refuge before it was designated an urban refuge. What is the designation meant uh, for the refuge, and, and what does it mean to you? Well, I have to admit, I, I'm not sure I can say what it's meant for the refuge, uh, when it occurred or anything like that. But it's very clear to me, and always has been, this is a urban refuge, uh, ever since I first started coming to it. Um, because I, I, I do like road trips. And so, for example, uh, you know, we went up to Medford recently, right, in June. And yeah. so that's a day and a half drive from the Bay Area, for me anyway. And the, I visited refuges along the way and on the way back. <laughs> and they're mostly rural. Uh, Sacramento, Calusa, um, trying to think, and Humboldt Bay even is, is what I would call that way. So, there, you know, there's, you're out in the middle of nowhere for the most part, and you're surrounded by fields or, or farms or something like that. It, and there's hardly a building in sight, so yeah. it's very it's a very different feel than if you're in our area where you're surrounded by millions of homes and, and millions of people and lots of highways and traffic and sounds and stuff. However, whenever I go out there. And I, I typically lead a, I'm a docent for a program called Drawbridge. It's the remnants of this town out in the uh, south end of the marsh uh, that uh, nobody lives there anymore, but uh, they left when the refuge was formed and stuff. And it was okay. declining, declining since then. But anyway, when I go out there, it's about three miles north of the EEC. And you're out there, and it's almost like you're in a, in a rural refuge because you can't hear anything but the birds and the the, the water or the streams, the uh, rustling of the tule and so on, and the breeze. And it's amazing. You look around, and you can clearly see buildings. You can see the hills. You can I can see Tesla from, 
from there rather easily uh, miles away. But you're not. You're really, it's like you've got this rural, rural refuge in the middle of an urban area. And I think that's uh, the wonderful plus that Don Edwards brings. Yeah, you paint a nice picture. So you mentioned you're a docent. Uh, what else do you do in your role of supporting the refuge? Well, I, uh, you know, I'm an engineer by education. I worked in engin- in high tech for most of my career, most of my life, and I retired the first time in 2000 and, and was looking for something to volunteer at. And EEC in Alvisa was just north of where my last my the last job I was retiring from at that point was. And I wandered out there, hadn't really spent time, kind of saw it and said, well, what could I do to help? And so I started doing things with uh, Fish and Wildlife, Jamie Moore there back then. And I picked up, uh, I started bird watching. I'd never really done any active bird watching at that time. And I was walking with a, a friend most weekends and we thought, well, what are these birds? Then I realized that Audubon and others at that time didn't have many classes for beginners. We, you would go to these walks and it would be intermediates and, and experienced birders talking about their life lists for the county. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I'd like a life list of the whole right. world, right? <laughs> so I, I started, I offered and, and researched and started doing a beginning bird watchers class. So that was kind of the first thing I think I did. Excuse me. And then I did that for a number of years, and over the last years, I've become a little bit mobility impaired, mobility challenged. So I started doing a van tour for uh, mobility impaired birders, and we would go out there. And uh, I think it was about 2000. It was 2008. I'd been doing this for a while. And the long-term volunteer who had done the drawbridge program, which at that time was strictly a talk uh, about the town with photographs and and discussions, so uh, she was leaving uh, the the state, retiring to another state. And I was gonna, I offered and was going to pick it up from her, and she said, you know, we used to be able to go out there back in the 80s and 90s, but we stopped it for a variety of reasons. But I'd love to at least see it from a distance again. So we used the van. I said, well, I do this birding thing. Why don't we drive out in the van and we'll do the tour that way? So we did the talk and we drove out there. And ever since when I picked it up, we've always had the van tour as part of the big draw. So I do it multiple times a year. And in fact, we just finished uh, me and this other. Uh, woman, 92-year-old woman, she and I wrote uh, a new book for the society uh, on drawbridge, Sinking Underwater. So just publish that. But anyway, docent for that. That's my fish and wildlife volunteer hat on. Then my other hat in 2005 was one of the volunteers said, gee, we really think you should be on this wildlife society, San Francisco Bay Wildlife Society. And so I said, okay, that's all I need is another volunteer activity. <laughs> so I ended up joining the board and ultimately becoming president for quite a while now. So that's my other hat. Well, thank you for your work. Uh, it, it takes people with passion like yours to, to make the world go around. Have you, uh, what, what have you seen? What's, the, what's on your life list now from your, from your uh, van tour? Uh, oh, you mean from a bird standpoint? Yeah, what, what's the coolest thing you've seen out there? Uh, well, the coolest thing I've seen out there is a seal, harbor seals. And since my nickname is Seal, that's always kind of a neat, <laughs> connect, neat connection. We spell yeah. it differently, but <laughs> but uh, I have seen harbor seals out there, though, that commonly. 
Yeah. Uh, Northern Harriers, um, oh, Dowichers, Curlews, lots of avocets and stilts. I'm a big duck person. That's kind of my, uh, we all start with a certain kind of bird, I think, and I started with ducks. Yeah. And my, we're, we're in the Pacific Flyway and the migratory thing, so we, we see a lot of ducks out there in the migratory season. That's cool. Um, so that's neat. And that's, I think, what prompted me to go out to the other refuges, to visit all the refuges on the Central Valley. <clears throat> so you know, I worked for the National Audubon Society in the early 2000s, and I always used to joke that birds are kind of the gateway drug to nature. Uh, you know, they're... They're everywhere, so you can kind of get into them uh, uh, if you're in town or in the country. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And then once you're there, there's just something about it that connects you to the to the other natural elements, or at least gets you going to other places looking for new birds. So uh, they're they're great ambassadors uh, for for people getting involved in conservation for sure. Very good point. Very good point. So, um, how looking back at your in in your time and in your involvement out at the refuge. Uh, can you can you remember an aha moment or a, a real feel good moment uh, that you had on the refuge? Oh, you know I know you'd <clears throat> you'd ask me that or told me to think about that, and I I, I can't come up with one, and I think <laughs> I can come up with many, but they. A number of them all seem to revolve around when I when I do take the drawbridge tour, folks out, and we're standing out there and just trying to help people visualize what it might have been like to live out there, three miles from the nearest small town uh, in the early 1900s. And I talk about uh, some of the people that we've, uh, through primary sources, interviews with people who live there, that I've been able to read those interviews, um, how they live there. And and some live there full time. They were permanent residents. Others were more uh, seasonal residents who come for duck hunting or come for the summer, uh, families and so on. But when I take people out there and we stand there with spotting scope or binoculars and, and see those buildings and just sort of feel the wind coming through, looking out there and thinking, what would it have been like to live there? It, I think it makes, I think part, one of the, two of the reasons, one of them is it's neat to be able to show people that and have them feel that same feeling and, and come back with those same memories. But I think the other piece, it probably connects to my childhood. I grew up in Minnesota, 10,000 plus lakes. We would often go out to my uh, second dad's cabin and outhouse and <laughs> on the lake and fishing and swimming and so it 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 I think it really connects. I can I can think of being in a cabin like that for a weekend or a summer. Uh, and of course, Robert had only outhouses. There was no sewers or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, right. So it, I mean, all those things it just all kind of comes together. And I guess maybe that's why it it has that sweet spot in the in the gut that says, wow, this is cool, right? <laughs> yeah, that is cool. It's a beautiful story. I love the fact that refuges are all of ours, but uh, are specifically ours. Um, everybody's got their own personal connection if they've spent any time on refuge, and, and you've touched on it right then and there. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, Seal Craig is the president of the San Francisco Bay Wildlife Society. 
whose primary mission is to promote public awareness and appreciation of San Francisco Bay and its natural history and to conserve and preserve the remaining bay lands and essential wildlife habitat. Keel, thank you so much for being on Refuge Radio today. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. Sure thing. And, uh, and I hope we'll have you back in a future episode of Refuge Radio. Until next time, we'll see you on the Refuge.